Hi, everyone. This is Raghu Marcus from BindPod Network and Mind Rolling. And uh, you're about to hear our latest Mind Rolling podcast. But before we get it going, just a little preamble here. This is going to be the last week of our MindPod Network crowdfunding on Indiegogo. And uh, I want to thank everybody for the support that we've been given over the last few weeks. And just to say, though, we have a ways to go to reach our goal. And uh, I've said over the last couple of podcasts, uh, how about uh, everybody just just give like $9. I keep using that figure. We can make it $3. As if everybody did $3, you know, 15,000 people, boy, we'd get to that goal right away. Of course, everybody isn't going to do it, but we're hoping many of you really do, again, think that this is of true value, not only, not only for ourselves, but for everyone who might chance upon MindPod Network with what with Ram Das, Krishna Das, Jack Kornfield, uh, Sharon Salzberg. Lama Surya Das, Tara Brock, Michael Donovan, and Chris Grosso. So it's it's a pretty rich experience, and uh, uh, well, I'm encouraging of everybody to support this beyond uh, just what everyone personally gets out of it. And this is really, I feel, paying it forward for getting this wisdom of the last uh, decades from some of these people out there to share. So please do consider going to MindPod Network. Just click on the banner at the top, and it'll send you right to the Indiegogo page. There's all kinds of perks, uh, etc. Of course, you do not have to get a perk. You can just go uh, click on donation or whatever it says there, uh, and you can just donate anything, any amount you want. Um, and we're uh, uh, we're we're pretty happy with. The uh, the ongoing process of this, it's uh, something that, uh, you know, I mean the crowdfunding, it's something that's just necessary for us at this point. Uh, we really need help. We really need people to support what we're doing. Uh, and we need to build an app. And we need to uh, build some more content because people are asking for it online courses and so on. We have a terrific one called Life in Balance, and as soon as the campaign's over, we'll be able to hire some people to get it moving. So thank you again uh, for your uh, what support you've given and, and hopefully what support you will give. And here is uh, David and I on the newest episode of Mind Rolling. Welcome back to Mind Rolling. David Silver and I, Raghu Marcus, I and I. Huh? I and I, Dave. I, I, yeah, we are. I and I. Yeah. Um, oh, it's not supposed to be two individuals. I think the original Ethiopian Rasta thing is myself and Jah Almighty. Uh-huh. So it's I and I, all one kind of thing. Uh, you, yes. Yes. Okay. Exactly that. Yeah. Um, you, you know how I always bring up the... Um, uh, the comments about the end of the world or little nuggets news from the end of the world right yes yes yeah well i actually found something books for the end of the world there's actually oh, books that's and useful you have time to it? read them of course yeah know. and if you really want to you know slam yourself on a day-to-day basis um the end of the world can often be found at the end of our bookshelves 
post-apocalyptic stories have been around for a long time. Noah's Ark and the Great Flood is just one example. And the modern genre of post-apocalyptic fiction can be traced back two centuries to Mary Shelley's The Last Man in 1826. Wow. Yeah. But novels about surviving a catastrophe keep coming. And, of course, they've all been embraced by Hollywood. Global nuclear warfare plague, zombies, comets falling from the sky, earthquakes, floods, are simply an unknown disaster. Take your pick from this selection of books and imagine mm. mankind teetering on the brink. It's mm. called Earth Abides, uh, George Stewart. Okay, You can go to Amazon and look up George and get your fill of books for the end of the world. I just thought that... That's really something. Ridiculous. Uh, Mary Shelley wrote uh, Frankenstein, right? Yeah. 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 And The Last Man in 1826, which I've never heard of. So you learn something every day. And going to something a little bit more positive, uh, I wanted to tell you about a book that I bet you don't know about. Yeah, very possibly. <laughs> yeah. Do you, uh, Pico Iyer. You know Pico Iyer? He, he's like a... Sir, he's both. He, he writes. He writes wonderful books, a travel adventure kind of things. He's also close to His Holiness the Dalai Lama, and uh, I really love his writing. Do you know him? Have you heard of him? Uh, no. Really? Oh, this is a big find for you. You're going to love him. Okay. This That's is a good thing. Great, thank you. Yeah, I haven't read this book, and it's from a. Uh, I think these TED talks that are sometimes put together. Uh, as books, put out as books. It's called The Art of Stillness, Adventures in Going Nowhere. Uh, it's about turning your back on the world, stepping away now and then so you can see the world more clearly and love it more deeply. But what what I love about what I read about this is he gets together, he tells the story of getting together with Leonard Cohn, my hero. Okay. And um, when Leonard was doing his... Uh, Mount Baldy Zen Center thing uh, many years ago. Uh, and he went to visit him, right? And just just talked to him about what it was he was doing, why he was doing it. And, you know, he was with that teacher, uh, Kyozan Joshu Sasaki. And he was ordained, Leonard, uh, as a Zen Buddhist and given the Dharma name uh, Jikan, which is Pali for silence. Um so he said, I came up to here to, in order to write about my host near silent, anonymous life on the mountain, uh, but I lost all sense of where I was. I could hardly believe this rabbinic, rabbinical-seeming gentleman in wire-rimmed glasses and wool cap was in truth the singer and poet who'd been renowned for 30 years as an international heartthrob, a constant travel, an Armani-clad man of the world. So he was like blown away by uh, by Leonard, and, and he described uh, the hubbub of his ordinary state of mind. Nobody can put wor- put stuff into words that you, you so get it. Uh, he described the hubbub of his ordinary state of mind as very much like the waiting room at the DMV. <laughs> uh, so he sought the sequestered Zen community as a more co- extreme committed version of respite. Um, uh, so, uh, 
he 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 come to this old world redoubt to make a life, an art out of stillness, right? Only Leonard could look at this in in that way. Um, uh, he w- the w- so he visited him, and he was spending seven days and nights in a bare meditation hall, sitting stock still. Right? Can you imagine? Um, uh, sitting still, he said, with an unexpected passion, was the real deep entertainment he had found. Real, profound, and voluptuous, and delicious entertainment. The real feast that is available within this activity. Uh, was he kidding? <laughs> uh, he wasn't. What else should I be doing, Leonard said. Would I be starting a new marriage with a young woman? Raising another family? Finding new drugs? Buying more expensive wine? I don't know. This seems to me the most luxurious and sumptuous response to the emptiness of my own existence. Do you love him? Yes. Oh, my God. Unreservedly. Yeah. Uh, typically... You know, when, I've seen, when I've seen him, I've seen him quite a few times in the last 10 years, say... Uh, his performances are just the greatest. His band is the greatest. And it makes me happy because he's old. And in this ageist society that we live in, where the likes of Mr. Justin Bieber are considered to be our mentors or the young's mentors, I guess they're not. It's great to have an 83-year-old guy letting us know what he's learned in, in a most beautiful way. He's an amazing singer, and I just admire the way he arranges those. You know, Roger, the way he arranges mm-hmm. the music on stage with his incredible background singers and sometimes a, a virtuoso guitar player whose name I have unfortunately forgotten. Um, just remarkable artist, and, yeah, I feel the same way you do. Mm. He's a hero. Well, this book is more than just uh, this whole encounter with with Leonard. Uh, It's amazing. Um, Here's a quote. You remember, oh, you know Bertrand Russell, right? Well, I didn't know him too well personally. (laughs) No, you didn't. You know everybody. I actually marched with him, sort of next to him in a CND march in 19-whatever, CND's campaign for nuclear disarmament, which was the first protest movement against American invasion of Britain with their nuclear weapons. And we used to march regularly, and Bertrand Russell was the head of it. And I marched once in London next to him. He didn't know me from Adam, but I certainly knew him. See? I knew it. Isn't that amazing? But I didn't know him. But I I tried to read his books, and I'm afraid I'm just not smart enough to read his books. If you're not, then I couldn't read the first word. I really couldn't. I tried. It was like, ah, this is hurting my brain. (laughs) This is great from uh, Pico. We've lost our Sundays, our weekends, our nights off, our holy days, as some would have it. Our bosses, junk mailers, our parents can find us wherever we are at any time of day and night. More and more of us feel like emergency room physicians. This is me permanently on call, required to hear our, heal ourselves, but unable to find the prescription for all of the clutter on our desk. Oh, Jesus, that's right to the point. Um, mm-hmm. So this is a, 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 a book that I am going to order from our Amazon portal, like today. So uh, again, everybody, don't forget the... Uh, of course, you can support us by sending a donation, which people have been doing, which is fantastic. But 
certainly everybody's buying stuff from Amazon, so just go to mindpodnetwork.com, go onto the Mind Rolling page, or just right on the homepage of Mind Pod Network, and you'll find the Amazon banner, and just uh, there's your link. And once you see the link, you can just bookmark it, and uh, hopefully, I know, you know, there's a sharing. Those of you who love Duncan out there, and there's other people that you got to share, put a little bit in every one of these podcasters. Uh, Someone wrote to us about a thing called Smile on Amazon. You know oh, about yeah. that? No, I saw that. I didn't know about that. Nor did I, but it's a thing whereby you can donate the money. You can choose who you, uh, who they send their um, small amount to. So oh. if you're if you're wanting to do something for the Nepal, the appalling Nepal situation or Haiti or whatever, you can do it via that, I think. But check it out. It's called Smile. We just got a, a letter about it. Can I say, I, there's one more little quote here, okay? Sure. It's just, uh, I mean, this is, uh, and it's, uh, um, I think it's from someone named Annie Dillard's uh, uh, memorable notion of unmerited grace that is handed to you, but only if you look for it. And here's what Iyer says about uh, considering the words that beckon us from that space of stillness. It's only by taking myself away from clutter and distraction that I can begin to hear something out of earshot. And recall that listening is much more invigorating than giving voice to all the thoughts and prejudices that anyway keep me company 24 hours a day. And it's only by going nowhere, by sitting still or letting my mind relax, that I find that the thoughts that come to me unbidden are far fresher and more imaginative than the ones I consciously seek out. It takes courage, of course, to step out of the fray, as it takes courage to do anything that's necessary, whether tending to a loved one on her deathbed or turning away from that sugar-coated donut. Pretty good stuff, huh? Yes. Terrific. What's the name of it? Pico? Pico Iyer, and you spell that I-Y-E-R, The Art of Stillness. It's a TED original, uh, and I am positive... It's on Amazon, so you can go on Amazon. Yeah. Yeah. I've seen his name now that you mentioned it, but I haven't read it. So that's good. We should all take yeah. a look at that. Yeah, because mm-hmm. we're going to talk a little bit of mindfulness stuff. I think David's got something to talk about, you have. and uh, But before we do that, since we're kind of in this mood of stillness, um, and we haven't done this in a while, I've, I have uh, somebody that I found, a Tibetan uh, singer named Annie Choling, who's fantastic, and I, I just wanted to p- play a little bit of, uh, of her uh, record. Uh, I want to find out what her record. I think it's called Bodhi, B-O-D-H-I, and um, this just uh, I'm just going to play a little bit of this, and, and this is an opportunity actually for every. Uh, hopefully, you're not driving right now. If you're driving, ignore me. But if you're not driving, just like uh, as uh, Pico just said, just an opportunity to just drop everything and just uh, sit in a little bit of stillness, which, of course, music has such a powerful uh, way of allowing that to happen. So here, just for a second. Thank you. 
Beautiful piece. I mean, real piece. Real piece. Annie Joling. So, uh, the it's Inner Peace by Annie Choling Drolma. D-R-O-L-M-A. Also available on Amazon or wherever you stream, download, or however you get your music these days. Uh, yeah, I just thought that fits perfectly with that pico ire thing so now i'm going to turn the show over to dave see pico's right because while the music was playing i was checking my emails oh and, jesus uh, you know and i'm not much of one of those people in fact i'd throw my cellular phone a distance if i didn't have to sort of have it but again that statement is nonsense do i have to have it not really uh that's sort of ties in a little tiny bit as a segue with this book that you recommended to me or not a book 
It's in Tricycle, the wonderful Tricycle magazine, the Buddhist magazine. And it's an interview with Evan Thompson. Uh, the article is called The Embodied Mind. And uh, it's a really insightful article, somewhat difficult for me to understand in some ways. But um, let's talk about Evan Thompson for a second. He was the son of William Irwin Thompson, who many of you might know was the founder of Lindisfarne, an amazing institution, uh, which was everything from like an Esalen type place for uh, awareness studies and mindfulness studies way back, and farming and organic farming and uh, environmental and ecosystems and so forth started in Scotland. And um, he was a, a, a fan of Robert Thurman and of Francisco Varela, who was the original person that put Buddhism and cognitive science together. Um, and the article is really very complex and dense, but it comes down to this. that Mr. Thompson has an argument with the, uh, what he calls the fetishization of mindfulness, which Rago and I have talked about endlessly. But it's an important subject because he's saying not that mindfulness is bad or is a study, nothing so simple. He's just saying that the objectification of, of the word has created it as a tool uh, allowing cognitive scientists and neurologists and so forth to think that the mind is objectifiable. Therefore, there are parts of the mind that do certain things and they can identify through all kinds of scanning certain things that make you think certain things and all of that. And he says, what's happened is that we, we, we use mindfulness as a tool and that the mind is not in the brain, which is what science is constantly, you know, sort of positing. Mm. You know, that you can just sort of analyze it and cut it up and you take a brain and, oh, there's the, the stuff we've learned from TV. And there's how to do skip rope. And there's how to swim. And that's how we know our mother. And he says, as Deepak Chopra has said, that that concept of localized mind being somehow in the darkness of the brain in some tunnel or room of the brain is patent nonsense. And so what he comes out of this with is that what it is, in fact, is the mind is, 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 is really social, relational, and ethical and would not exist if we did not exist in the perfect environment for human, this human species to exist. And then, therefore, is not something findable that's in the brain permanently. Uh, no, it's dependent upon everything. And he then goes to talk about this guy, a Canadian gentleman called Ian Hacking, who's talked about the looping effect, which is that once we make a statement about something or someone, they change. So if we talk about the poor, the obese, the rich, the famous, the artistic, the, it, that changes everything. And therefore, um, we can't fetishize mindfulness because the person that's thinking about it is thinking somewhat differently about it than the person standing next to him or her. Therefore, it's sort of like quantum theory in a way, that the mind of the observer changes the concept being discussed. So mindfulness is not... A, a, a sort of a, a tool that we can all learn to find out about the mind. It's a way to be socially uh, altruistic, to help everyone around you and yourself, and to, to somewhat use the witness effect uh, to still the mind, as Raga was talking about with the Pico book and, and Leonard Cohen. Yes, those are all great things. And he's not putting down the concept of learning about mindfulness or studying it or meditating about it. He's just saying, let's not fetishize it. Okay. In other words, let's not, let's not 
you know, let's not say this is it and this is what it does. Mm. No, it does different things for everyone. And you can't point to something and say it will do that for you, despite what many, as he puts it, uh, meditation teachers talk about, that if you do this, you'll be free. It's not necessarily true. You may have different things to do to be free because you're a different incarnation. Well, can you so go back to, the, to what you said? I, I'm not totally getting it. When you, when you make a statement about somebody uh, uh, regarding what your perception is of that person, when you make a statement, are you, is that something that's going on in your mind or is he talking about something that you actually say to somebody? That's a really good question, and I'm not sure the answer to that. But what Ian Hacking says, he uses the expression making up people, making up people, that our uh, judgments and, and observations about people change those people. Now, if you are actually making the statement and it's public or it's to them or whatever, it changes their concept of themselves and says, okay, I am an obese person. Well, you say, well, you are an obese person. But he's saying that changes their self-image and therefore possibly their ability to deal with their situation because they've been objectified, perceived as an obese person rather than a person with huge potential, with all kinds of emotions and ideas and so forth, but they happen to be fat. He said, for instance, the word citizen did not exist until an entire systemic change was made in the way we organize society. There was no, there were no citizens. You know, you weren't a citizen. You were a member of a tribe, a family, a group. But now we're citizens, you know, presumably because we live in cities. He said that was not there before then, and now we're suddenly citizens? No, we're not. We're human beings free who can choose to be uh, responsible like good citizens. We can be responsible in that, that sort of use of the word. But he says, or Hacking says, that making up people, quote, making up people is what is causing so much problems in our society. Which, you know, Raga is really another way for saying judgmental behavior hurts the, the judged and the judger. Yeah. Yeah. I've been noticing, or, and, and I think we've discussed this a little bit in the past, even the thought form. Like if you don't, that's why I asked this question. Is this something that you're saying out loud or is it something you're saying in your head? I believe that obviously if you're saying it out loud and, and, and you're objectifying a person in that way, uh, that's it's pretty pernicious really. Um, but I think most of us don't actually do that. Most of us walk around and every phenomenon, every object that comes into our view, we... Uh, we react to and it and make it real only because we are reacting, which is the whole Buddhist concept of uh, the pure mind. Is, is the idea is that this this phenomenal nature is only happening because we are acting on on these uh, on on what we see and what we perceive, what we feel, what we, and so on. So I think that that thought when we walk by that. Uh, uh, and I, my God, I mean, you know, just walking in an airport, right? Which I was in recently, where you're, yeah, you're more prone to uh, look at people and uh, and just watch your m- mind. I mean, it's a great place to witness, and you do see an obese person, and your mind absolutely objectifies them and makes them less than who they are, as you said, than their potential is possibly to be or who they are is behind all of the physical manifestations and their suffering and so on. And just that thought absolutely 
is contributing to the negativity and the uh, and is keeping whoever is you're judging and objectifying uh, keeping them in that uh, in that little jail that they have uh, built for themselves to some degree especially if it's something like obesity but even if it's you know sexual objectification or whatever it is um, then uh, there's really not much different than from saying it out loud or uh, um, having it as a thought. So, yeah. It, it, you know, like the Hare Krishna people in the airports, as they used to be. Uh, yeah, where did know, they go, by the way? The hell, why know, aren't they in the airports anymore? I miss they, them now. They, they really aren't. And and they, I see them in Union Square in, in Manhattan. You? Yeah, there's a huge crowd of them every day in, in, in Union Square singing Hare Krishna and... Um, I notice that, that that these days people you know gather around, and I think they're less judgmental actually than we were. Uh, not saying you and me, but you know, it, it seems to me they've been absorbed somewhat. You know, who and the Hare Krishna? You know, well, you know, they sing beautifully too. You know, I've sat with them. Uh, you know, on a warmer type day, it's kind of difficult in the winter, but. Um, you know, it reminds me of Bob Dylan in the 60s when they used to do these incredible interviews. He didn't do many interviews, but whenever he did them, the newspapers would say, you know, the curmudgeon Dylan. But what he was doing was people would say, so, Bob, when did you become a protest singer? And he'd say, well, I, I, I'm not a protest singer, uh, number one. Number two, who are you? You know, and it would go like that. And he'd say, well, what about um, Highway 61 Revisited? Is that, a, is that a song about the end of the world? No, that's your perception of it. It's got nothing to do with what I'm doing. <laughs> and he would do this endlessly. And, you know, it's sort of part of Dylan's idea, which was not an idea. It was don't fence me in, brother. I'm, I'm singing. You know, I could be a rock star. I could be a folk singer. I could be a protest singer. I could be a motorcyclist. I'm many, many, many things. And for you to say, when did you become a protest singer? What is a pro Even now he says he's non-political. He was never political. That's the interesting thing about Bob Dylan. Yeah, he was, obviously, he had thoughts about the horrendous Vietnam atrocity and genocide. But, you know, he was no different from I was or many people at the time, which was, you know, we were many things and are many things. And, and, and we think many thoughts, some of which are good, some of which are ridiculous. But as you said before, if you are saying to an obese person and all you're relating to is the fact that she or he is fat and not observing their humanity... Um, then that is a great disservice, isn't it? It just That's happened to me yesterday. I'm just thinking now. I, uh -huh. I was in a parking lot at the grocery store, you know, and I live, what, as you know, about 20 minutes outside of Asheville, North Carolina. Right. And where I live is there, in Asheville, of course, it's like a boulder of the south, um, and the, a lot of people who, who are living there come from somewhere else. But where I live, uh, and you go to the, the big uh, supermarket, there's people who've been living here in families for, for ages, right? And I, so I drove in, and I parked my car, and right in front of me was an obese woman. And my mind just, I watched it just go there. And I, I even said what Ramdas does, he talks about when, uh, whenever he has a, a really screwed up thought or something, he goes, uh, how did I get here? And I was <laughs> thinking the same thing. How, where is this coming from? Why? You know, and uh, at, so at least it got cut off. But the but there's an such an incredible impulse that we have just to go to 
to this to this completely superficial negative thing. I'm gonna um, I'm gonna bring some stuff after you after we get through this uh, Evan thing that addresses that. But uh, go further. Well, I mean, man. Uh, when I read this article, Rago, I wasn't totally understanding of everything in it the first time uh, because it's it's pretty you know it, it's pretty deep stuff. I mean, Evan Thompson is one of the great you know thinkers, if you like, about bringing Buddhism, uh, Theravadan Buddhism, and and cognitive science together. However, he says cognitive science is not neurology. You know, the cognitive science is, is some way of, of, of thinking about the mind, but not necessarily about the, the, you know, the, the synapses and all the rest of it that goes into the brain sort of dynamic. I think what he's saying, and, and one of the things he says, which I found very interesting, was that he said, yeah, it's great, you know, His Holiness Dalai Lama is doing this, and Ian Hacking did it with him, and, and all these people, Thurman and so forth, but they have their perspectives too you know, social, political, sexual, whatever, and that you sift through it and you find stuff that's a parallel thing and you understand it. You said, but you know something? The fact that we're fighting to get science and Buddhism or spirituality together is one thing. Why aren't we getting more spirituality in the humanities together? That's one of his big points in this article. That, you know, we're all obsessed with, you know, we've got to find a science of mindfulness. And he said, nah, no, we don't. You know, and I agree with him. He doesn't use the word, but it's like the mystery is the mystery. As Ang Lee, the great director, said to me one morning over breakfast, he said, do you really want to know everything, David? Do you really want to know everything? Isn't that a little bit boring? You want to know what God is? Do some Tai Chi with me. But I'm not going to tell you what it means. And, uh, you know, this is what Thompson's sort of getting to at the end of the day. He's saying the humanities and mindfulness and spiritual uh, pursuits are clearly together. And Raga, you've brought up Anais Nin many times and Leonard Cohen and, and, and people who are artists, but somehow capture a spiritual atmosphere mm-hmm. better than anybody except maybe His Holiness or the Karmapa, His Holiness the Karmapa and so forth, who are trained to articulate this. But uh, most scientists, as Thompson says, are looking for this grail this sort of growl, there's consciousness. I found it, baby. It's in the fourth quarter of the fifth ellipse of the 16th tunnel in the 19th part of the second quarter of the brain. And he's saying, that's bullshit. Stop it. Just stop it. There's no need for that. Just, you know, work on, work on being mindful so you can be altruistic. He's much more interested in that, which is very interesting to me. And that's part of the Lindisfarne tradition, which is spiritual study in the service of the planet. And therefore, I think, and I, I, you know, Raghu comes up with these, I'm saying Raghu as if he's not here. It's like I'm talking about my cat. <laughs> but oh, thanks Raghu a lot, comes up these amazing Jesus articles Christ. and, you know, uh, ameliorates my um, condition by this. Because I read this and it's, I advise you to read it. Just check it out. Tricycle, uh, order it on Amazon through the, the <laughs> very good <laughs> day. Mind rolling. <laughs> portal well i never <laughs> i've stopped doing this i'm gonna do it yeah uh, well i want to i want to bring back Bernadine one day day yeah well she's available but she's 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 in a, a retreat right now to get oh, rid of i her. thought she had a new relationship <laughs> that she was no i can impersonate her very well. all right then go to your mind rolling portal <laughs> and and order a subscription to tricycle which is about uh, it's not bicycle bicycle's another thing that's about <laughs> Bicycles. Tricycle is about, you know, the universe. I see. I Thank do her you. very well. Yes. I, I, uh, no, that's terrific. 
anyway, so, you know, and then the last thing that Thompson says, which made me happy, was that he talks about the American Enterprise Institute. Now, if you remember, we probably don't, but we did a podcast about a great guy who... Yes, I do. great thing, about a guy who's the head of the American Enterprise Institute, and I objected because it's an extreme right-wing organization which cares little for most people but cares a lot for the elite that runs America and fights on their behalf, the armament companies and, the, and so forth, and has no interest whatsoever in, in the huddled masses. These guys are talking about mindfulness, and Mr. Thompson, to his everlasting credit, says, Stop! You're not mindful. If you were mindful, you'd be nicer to people. You'd be humane. You'd think about the, the, the social net network, not the network, the, uh, what, uh, what do you call it, the net, the, the safety net. You'd mm. think about people who can't afford, they're trying to uh, turn over Obamacare now, it may not be the most perfect thing in the world, but if they do it in the Supreme Court next week, uh, I think 10 million people will lose their insurance. And that's the kind of thing the American Enterprise Institute loves. So Evan Thompson says, I'm not listening to these people from the right wing about mindfulness, about, I'm not listening to the military about how to be better military. To hell with all of you. Be mindful. Be humane. Think about the other people on the planet who've got less than you because in your next incarnation, you may have less than you. Mm. Thank you very much and good night. <laughs> <laughs> I can't believe you let me do that whole rant without some kind of interruption. No, because I, I was so enthralled by it. And I, was, and I was also thinking, I remember saying at the time, well, this guy may be involved with all this conservative think tank bullshit or whatever, but... He still, you know, he was saying things that that rang a bell, and uh, yeah. and you went along with me at that time. But now uh, you won't. <laughs> that's the end of that. Now you're no, I, you're an right. Evan I'm, I'm a turncoat. But you know, we talk about David Brooks a lot. You know, who's a conservative and a very well known one. Writes New York Times. Is on yeah. uh, the PBS News News Hour, and we know he's sincere, and we know he means what he's talking about moral moral issues and spiritual capital and so forth. It's just not a blanket, you know. For uh, right. Republicans who are listening, please let us off the hook. Hey, we, we, I know, I know some nice Republicans. You do. Some of my best friends are Republicans. <laughs> <laughs> and Jews? <laughs> no, I don't believe that. Yeah, um, but it is interesting that Evan Thompson takes a political stand because he's saying the study of the mind has to be integrated with social, political, sexual, ethical, environmental um, considerations of which we are a part, yeah. and that to just look at the brain as being the receptacle of all wisdom is wrong. And he says wisdom studies are much more important than neural studies. Mm. You but know, I mean. Well, you've got to have neural studies, too, because someone has a brain tumor. You're not going to get rid of it by just sitting there being mindful. And I think His Holiness is working on all of this with science scientists and uh, really purposefully to just allow people who are so caught into the reality of unless I see it, feel it, touch it, and explain it, I am not, uh, there, is no, there, there is no way that I can enter into this and so I think he's very purposeful about what he's doing. And uh, so uh, I do believe all of this stuff that is going on relative to, you know, the Tibetan Buddhist, uh, what they've uh, garnered in these centuries of working on the science of, of mind and reality um, is, is a worthwhile endeavor, of course, you know, that I should even say that. Uh, His Holiness knows what he's doing. Um, but just back to this one thing uh, that I think is the essence of what the, this Evan Thompson article is about, as I'm hearing it from you, because I didn't get to read it. 
I just send you this shit, Dave. And that's what I do, everybody. I send it to Dave, and it's I know he's... distortion. He'll... You've got to check on me, you know. <laughs> a little bit off the wall, you know. Uh, yeah, okay. I'll start doing that. Uh, we did a podcast a couple of months ago at this retreat in Maui with Ram Dass. Uh, Duncan Trussell and I did one with uh, Christian Das, which is up on mindpodnetwork.com. You can look it up. Uh, it's it's fairly recent. Uh uh, it'll, it'll say Duncan and, and Raghu with Krishnadas. Um, but it, what was talked about then, uh, what uh, Krishnadas br- brought up, I think he talked about, listen, I've been doing this forever, uh, you know, and I'm still fucked up. He said, and Duncan, <laughs> Duncan went, thanks for saying that. I'm really happy. I feel so much better now. Um, but, uh, I think at one point, if I remember correctly, and I hope it's from this podcast, uh, he was talking about how, to me, about how how much spiritual work, quote unquote, we've been doing for you know since that time in India, since we were with Neem Karoli Baba Maharaji, and since we we've learned all sorts of amazing practices, uh, Southern Buddhist meditation, and and being with Tibetan lamas of of incredible renown, and he said. So where are we now? Are we kinder? Are we more loving? Are we more compassionate? And I guess that's really what this article is saying with this whole invest, you know, mindfulness, the the catchword, the it's become you know, just a part of our lexicon here in in the west, a spiritual lexicon. Uh and and that's really the bottom line is Whatever these practices that one is doing, whatever these investigations with science and uh, spirituality and neuroscience and so on, it, it's what you just said. He said, is it, if, if we are becoming better people and if we are treating each other better, if we are not so quickly jumping to judgments and so on, then God bless, it's working. But if this mm. is just spinning you know, tongues then it's just a you know a bunch more bullshit. I mean that's what I'm getting out of what uh, what you what you well, garnered. Yeah, I think he's implying that. And um, of course, coming from the Christian dust, it's always very uh, resonant to me because he he refuses to be pompous about his 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 learning process over the years. You know, I was, I mean, just to really take a, a left turn here, uh, I worked with a, a the Mormon community about. Oh, I don't know. Twelve or thirteen years ago, I did a movie uh, for them in Salt Lake City, and became friendly with a bunch of Mormons, um, and who I remain friendly with. And one time, the guy who produced it, uh, Randy, uh, came to New York and uh, called me. We we had a, a couple of, you know, we we had a, a meal. You know, no coffee, no Coca Cola, no drinks, no none of that, because he's a Mormon. And then we went for a walk in the in the East Village, and we were standing next to a pizza parlor, talking on the street. And he saw a couple of really down and out people. I mean, I hate the word skid row, but it sort of says it. You know, it was just awful. They were there and they were clearly hungry and everybody was just running past them and and avoiding them. They didn't smell too great. And Randy just went up to him and put his arms around him and took him into the pizza house and sat down with him and bought him a load of food and insisted I came in and and we, we were with them and 
I was very moved by this. Uh, there was no missionary. He didn't mention that he was a Mormon. He didn't say anything about Jesus Christ to them. He just helped them. And then we left and we went somewhere else. And I said to him, Randy, that was really something. I wouldn't have done that on my own. He said, well, you know, that's kind of what I've been taught. What is the use of all this? What is the use of all this? If we can't actually help people who are clearly suffering in front of us. And he was a Mormon. And it's very um, uh, sort of normal to, you know, I mean, they've even made a funny musical about it, The Book of Mormon. And you may think they're all crazy, whatever. But, you know, Rastafarians believe in Haile Selassie, you know, who's an embodiment of, 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 of Jah Almighty. And you could look at that and go, what the hell is that? But if it, if it really sort of pushes people into an altruistic demeanor, what could be the harm of that? Because the world needs constantly more and more and more of that. And I think KD was saying, and Duncan was probably very, uh, you know, au fait with it, was, you know, um, all this teaching, does it make us better with other people? Does it make us more considerate? I think it does, and I think KD knows that it does, but we can't get calcified about that thought about ourselves. You know, because I mean, I'm I'm a very reactive person. I get angry. You know, I, I see people on TV saying things, and I yell at them and everything, and it's just doing me no good. And I've also been, you know, in some kind of spiritual path for um, over fifty years, and um, sometimes I find myself hating people. You know, and you can imagine who. And uh, <laughs> what's the point? You know, it, it, have you learned anything? You know, have you learned anything? Is it useful for the rest of the people who don't happen to be in your incarnated body? Or is it ultimately all about your incarnated body? And I'm not going to do anything that makes that uncomfortable or makes me uncomfortable, including a, a piss-smelling homeless person. Hmm. You know, uh, our friend Danny Goldberg, whose podcast will be up soon, uh, is a successful man, and if you're ever out and about with him, and I've been out and about with him in many places in the world, and there's anybody who needs money or food or anything, he shoots to them like a magnet. And he doesn't give them a dollar, he'll give them 30, or whatever's in his wallet. And that's not just because he's made some money in his life. He just feels that movement. He feels that thing in himself that has great empathy for someone who's really suffering. And, you know, uh, I've always loved Danny for that, that he's just not a speaker about this stuff, but he lives it. And he's loyal to his friends from way back before any of us knew anything and, and very helpful to his friends. And, you know, the, the, the proof is in the pudding, as they used to say. Um, well, you know, Dave, just yeah. thinking about this well, a little bit, I was thinking about the the idea that uh, what Krishna said, you know, after all these decades, you know, we're still dealing with our stuff here, um, and and the and the proof is in the pudding by how we treat each other in terms of kindness and compassion. At the same time, it's treating ourselves with kindness and compassion because we are human, and uh, you know, like like you, somebody's going to say something on TV, and you're going to be railing out against them, and and. Uh, or walk wherever it may be. There's thoughts that come into our mind, automatic thoughts, for, for just uh, the, the reality of how we separate ourselves out from 
people to give it's a feeling we want to give ourselves more self-worth we want to aggrandize ourselves we want to there there's a natural proclivity for the human uh, ego to be living in separateness so we have to honor the fact and as jack cornfield constantly reminds in many of his talks it's okay we're human it's okay and you know you just uh, so there's a, a middle path from um, doing uh, that thing of uh, self-flagellation, you know, we might as well get one of those uh, whips and you know how they self-flagellate uh, different uh, available cultures. on Amazon, by the way. The whip, self-flagellating whip, twelve dollars. Yes. No, I'm sure it's there for other purposes. You <laughs> might think that this would no, be I a worthy way to use it. <laughs> You're right. Okay, let's let's order them up. Um, but uh, I do. I, I must say, though, I, you know, I do. I do a lot of walking and running. More walking recently, and I, I'm much better at catching myself. I, it sounds kind of pompous, but I'm better at catching myself now than I was 20 years ago. I mean, I really am. I see it. You know, when you're walking and meditating, uh, you know, it's very interesting because all sorts of thoughts come in, and there's no one arguing with you, and there's no TV, and there's no books, and there's no anything. There's just you walking. And I see now that I catch, I'm better at catching that judgmental, mm. horrendously divisive thought, which says this particular person that just called me on, I'm thinking of an example from yesterday. So this is not old news, but I was thinking about someone who called me on the phone while I'm walking in beautiful woods with the sun shining and birds singing. I'm thinking this person called me and he's such an asshole, basically. I mean, he's an. Why does he still think that that's okay to say or do? And I, it went on and on. The thread went on. It, it went on so far that I, I came out of the woods. Now still thinking it. And then you're not out of the woods. Not out of the woods. <laughs> but then you know what I'm saying. In order to glorify myself a little, I did have the witness came in and said, "Come on, Dave, are you so?" wonderful i mean come on yes i'm wonderful but i also can be to someone else someone else might be saying right now i'm really sick of that english guy he thinks he knows stuff and he knows (laughs) nothing and i'm tired of him and i'm tired of his rap and you know you don't want that happening but but i I, in answer to katie's um and and your question which is incredibly valid in my opinion i think gradually but surely inevitably is inevitably yeah it, it you become more mindful yeah of the worst aspects of judgmentalism and and divisiveness that's happening i'm not going to say in your brain after having read evan thompson's article but in your mind and that mind is part of the one which includes everybody including um you know 7.2 billion people on this planet and surely other planets yeah. <laughs> and we can just about manage the people i can manage just about the people in my apartment building yeah <laughs> all right so now i got to give you some hope okay for all of all this right. yeah i have i found um there the uh, five um well there's many more than five but we're going to have five slogans okay oh, yeah. that's going to help out in our daily day-to-day dealings and and it really falls in line with much of what we've been talking about and it comes from the buddhist master atisha who lived 982 to 1054 isn't it amazing i mean they amazing they, they, i mean yeah. 982 and he i mean 
Jesus. I mean, it's like saying, you know, John Mellencamp was born in 1949. Yeah, I mean. Guys born a thousand years ago, and they still know the exact date. It's unbelievable. It is. It's marvelous. Yeah. It's okay, marvelous. number one. Of the two witnesses, hold the principal one. So I read this, and I what the fuck does that mean? I mean, Jesus Christ, it's too arcane. What? Okay, fortunately, uh, we, we have somebody who's... Uh, giving us some textualization, contextualization. It highlights the notion at the core of who we are, we are worthy, we're capable as a result of developing confidence in our own basic goodness. We have to have deep trust, which is my favorite word, as you know, deep trust in ourselves. When tricky situations arise, and don't they often do, there can be multiple points of view as to what's happened or what should happen, okay? So there are two, two witnesses. One is other people's view of you, which you assume, and your actions and, your own, and then your own view of yourself. Of these two points, and here's where it was, the principal one is your own insight, okay? Meditation practice is a practice in getting to know yourself very well. No one spent, has spent more time with you than you, right? You are your own best advisor because you know yourself well. You ought to respect your own insight and listen to it. Trust your intuition and lead from that perspective. Okay, but you know, the premise here is meditation practice. Right. I think if you do not have that and you are not Getting an understanding of your inner guts, mind, whatever you want to call it, then I think you can. It can be spurious to depend on your insight. Exactly. Right. So uh, I'm going to escape from this jail, even though I've killed nine people, and I may have to kill four when I'm running away from the cops. Yeah. Right. That's me. I know myself. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> You're right, Roger. You have to put that caveat in yeah, there. Yeah, that caveat has to be there, and that's why we talk about practice, practice, practice. Yes. Uh, number two, Dave, don't ponder others. I love this one because I'm particularly subject to this. <laughs> <laughs> when, you, when we obsess over other people's actions or affairs, we are not bettering, uh, uh, our, uh, we are not bettering anyone. Uh, when we think about others, this is from uh, the late Trolleg Rinpoche, we usually concentrate on their problems or defects. That's clearly a waste of time, and any satisfaction we may gain from dwelling on other people's faults is temporary and can leave a sour taste in our, month, in our mouth. So don't take delight, Dave, in other people's misfortunes or waste your time fantasizing about what may or may not be happening with them. So, and what that, of course, promulgates is obsessing over other people's business and perpetuating inner gossip. Do you have inner gossip? Absolutely. Don't ponder others. I think it's brilliant. You know, we have a a big TMZ show in our head, you know, (laughs) interrupting people when they come out of a car saying, didn't you have an affair with that other person? And it's just, (laughs) it's Great. Don't ponder others. And, you know, if you check it out, you'll find out that unless some of you are perfect, um, that uh, pondering others is is a real problem. Next one. Next one is don't bring things to a painful point. This is brilliant. This slogan is one of his favorite. Unfortunately, I 
didn't put the damn name. I'm going to have to give you the name of who wrote this article, which I will do at the end of it. Uh, this slogan uh, uh, is, a, have, how often have you wanted to get in the last word? Oh, boy. Or try to alleviate your discomfort by forcing an issue beyond what another person felt able to discuss. Okay. How often has that happened? When we engage in simple acts like this in an attempt to bring ourselves comfort, we are actually doing the opposite. We are bringing things to a painful point. Mm. All right. Another way we do that is running away from topics. Okay. This is the op- the, the other side of the coin. Yeah. You know, we think, oh, God, finances are screwed. Oh, my God, someone is very sick and, and may die. Um, or, or just your insecurity not knowing what you ought to be doing with your life, whatever it may be. You feel the tug of discomfort. You want to shut it down. You might lock yourself up in your room and watch multiple seasons of Game of Thrones. <laughs> and then, you know, it reminds me of Duncan Trussell. Not that Duncan's, Duncan's done this. But I passed him at the retreat one night, and Krishnadas was singing. I think I've even said this before. This is terrible, Duncan. Okay, terrible, terrible judgment, and um, we'll we'll um, we'll have to really apologize to you. But he was walking by, saying, "I said, where are you going? It's Kirtan's going on. Wonderful chanting." He said, "I got to go watch Game of Thrones." <laughs> yeah, I'm like that about English football. Uh, uh, you know. I will not, if someone, I mean, DVR has changed things around a little bit, but, you know, it's, I, I don't want to, but, you know, mm. I, I took a little different from this too. Don't bring things to a painful point is the one, Raga, but yeah. I sort of thought about it as being, you know, that thing avoid, more about avoidance and knowing that something's wrong and not doing anything, not doing anything. And then suddenly going, I hate you and I don't want to do that. And I want, you know, and it, it suddenly becomes awful and nobody can negotiate it because it's become extreme. Whereas if you'd have sort of tackled that, I think you did mention that you said you hide away. But yeah. I was taking it. This just shows that we well, bring Game of Thrones, hiding away, drinking uh, or, or spending hours obsessively checking out your favorite website, whatever we do to yeah. get away from it. And, and this one comes back, Dave, to the same thing as the other one, which is uh, so. Allowing space. And how do we allow... The only way to allow space, space is to have some sort of meditative practice. By the way, something occurs to me right here. I have to put in a commercial right here, Dave. Okay. All right. Everybody out there, a fantastic thing, because we're talking about practice of meditation being the uh, bulwark of being able to allow space to uh, allow things to resolve itself uh, based on on the don't bring things to a painful point or being um, being more mindful. Um, Ramdas, okay, on ramdas.org in beginning of July, so it'll be a, uh, about a week from hearing this podcast, is doing a meditation, a basic meditation course. There'll be... Uh, each week, a different guided meditation alongside of uh, teachings around mindfulness. And uh, this is a tremendous opportunity to, to start to work, uh, uh, being able to, even for people who have a practice or have trouble with a daily practice of meditation um, and getting into that routine. So some of the things that are being talked about through this whole show have some basis in, in, in being able to uh, execute, shall we say. It's not a, 
good word particularly, but being able to really deal with life's uh, vicissitudes. So uh, tune in to ramdas.org, everybody, um, and uh, you'll uh, join the email list if you haven't already done that, and you'll get an announcement. Sorry about that, Dave. No, it's good to be on the email list because um, you get that email and, and, and it immediately wakes you up to, oh, this is happening, or even just, you know, Seeing Ramdas's face or whatever, you know, just wakes you up a little bit, no matter how sleepy you are, like I am. Um, and will it, people, you know, if people are listening to this in the year twenty twenty five, will they be able to check up on this thing that we're talking about existentially? Twenty twenty five, or any date that isn't like next week. You know, in other words, I mean, this thing is now. But if well, someone's listening to this podcast much in a time that's not now, well, we're, like we're working on you know, the foundation is really working on making sure that we have uh, everything streaming from vendors that will still be uh, alive in 2025. And uh, so hopefully we're talking the two that we use. Uh, Amazon is our basic um, um, archive for everything. We're working on that, by the way, folks. And uh, YouTube is how we stream to uh, ramdas.org. So... Okay, got God it, got willing, it. those two. If those two things go, we're all gone. Okay, I don't. Know, who knows what's going to happen in ten years? We don't know. Um, well, I was, I was just thinking maybe in six months or something. You know, about no, really. six months. Forget about it. This is all going to be there. So yeah. sometimes, so it's saying here, this most skillful thing to do in a tricky situation is is allow space, and and things do resolve themselves. And and but if you find you're avoiding something here it is you ought to practice meditation so to bring you into the present which is what this whole course is going to be about next don't be swayed by external circumstances as someone who's trying to bridge so this is good uh, I was talking to one of our other friends who's on MindPod network um, um, Michael Donovan an incredible photographer who's got a podcast with us uh who uh, has amazing people, by the way, check him out, that he uh, talks to and interviews. Uh, we were talking about the seemingly large gap between spiritual life and work life. You should practice mindfulness whenever and wherever possible, not just when it feels good. Uh, when you train to be present and spacious only when things are good, you will feel that way only when things are good. When things are difficult, you will not be able to experience the qualities you are trying to cult cultivate. And here's from Trungpa Rinpoche. Although your external circumstances may vary, your practice should not be dependent on that. So please do not think of your meditation practice something that happens for a few minutes here and there throughout the day, but is something you can continuously engage in, especially when times get tough. So don't be swayed. By uh, everything here is predicated on a, you know, the more we read through this on a meditation uh, practice, don't expect applause. Okay, maybe that's not predicated on anything except being an idiot. Um, relax your expectations. When someone praises you for good work, you'll feel delighted. And Pema Chodron says we can thank others, but we should give up all hope of getting thanked back. That's a high bar, ain't it, Dave? Keep, no, keep the yeah. door open without expectations. I, I think it's that like may the be capper. You know, don't expect applause. It's like, and it's very hard. You think it's easy. Okay, I'm cool. You don't have to say it's cool. Someone once said to me very recently that they really didn't like this podcast. Um, and you never uh, told me that. Who the hell said that? I'm not. That? I'm not going to say. Um, but uh, you know, it it threw me, actually. 
it threw me. I, and I, 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 it came back to me. Day I still comes back to me, you know, because uh, the person, and I'm not going to mention gender even, um, said, you know, was quite sort of contemptuous of it. And, and I, I really? you know. Jeez. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. What, we, what are we doing wrong, Dave? I, I don't know. I, I mean, <laughs> I do know that, that, that this is a good example of this because I was pissed off. You know, I, I sort of went, wait a minute. We're doing this, we're, you know, for nothing. And we're taking time out. And even though we're both egomaniacs, it still is a, a generous thing. And why are you saying this? And I want you to clap. I don't want you to boo. <laughs> and the truth is, you know, that's not, you can't do this anything. This is just, we're talking about what we're doing right now. But if you, you know, um, someone's sick on the street or, 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 someone, or some untoward thing has happened, you know, most people, I think, I really hope I'm not wrong about this, but I think most people will jump to help and they're not expecting applause. You talk to fire firemen, you know, uh, you know, I, I, I sat next to a guy on a plane. I told you about this. It was one of the guys, the cops in Long Island when they attacked the World Trade Center. He, he turned around his, his Harley Davidson and his entire crew and drove back right into Manhattan and to the World Trade Center. He went there. Mm -hmm. And then he got uh, lung cancer from being in the horror of after that. And I'm sitting next to him on a plane, you know, and he wasn't expecting me to say to him, that's so heroic of you. And he said, no, I'm just doing my job. That's what I'm trained to do. And even though cops are not that popular right now because of these videos that people are showing of some real bad stuff, some cops indulge in. A lot of police and fire and EMT and nurses and so forth, they don't get any applause. Forget, you know, we get applause. People write us a letter and say, I love your podcast. It's great. You know, but your average cop, not many people will actually go to a cop and say, I love what you're doing, you know. And so they don't expect applause and they're just cops. They're not, you know, uh, right. tolkus. Yeah. So applause, no. It's nice to get applause if you're, if you're you know, a folk singer on stage. And it's really a drag if you're a comedian and people start walking out in the middle of your stand-up. <laughs> but that's a very specific situation where applause is part of the dynamic. And, I mean, people like Bono and Mick Jagger and people have said they could not possibly sing or do anything if there wasn't a crowd applauding. <laughs> that it's not just ego. It's part of the dynamic. Same for, you know, the, Cav the Cavs or the, the Lakers or, well, I shouldn't mention them, but the crowd <laughs> is a huge part. <laughs> or the Knicks for that. Oh, well, thank you. Um, you know, when LeBron does something great, people roar. And it just boosts his, not his ego, I don't think, it boosts his energy. He, he gets energy from that and can continue to be as great as he is, you know. All right. Um, so uh, the this article Sorry, uh, that was an, that was a little bit off the wall. That nah, I mean, wasn't yeah. strictly speaking what this Buddhist is talking about. Um, this is from the Buddha walks into the office by Lodro Rinsler, and I got it out of Shambhala's Sun, Great. another of our favorite magazines. And 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 this last little thing, uh, I don't even know if it's a he or she, to be honest with you. Uh, the path of this addresses the core of what we've been talking about this whole podcast, I think, and uh, what I brought up with uh, that podcast with Krishna Das. The path of exploring the Dharma is a lifelong one. The idea of determining who you want to be when you grow up is a constantly changing process. 
as I doubt any of us truly ever feels we have officially grown up. In other words, this is uh, appreciating our our humanness uh, and continuing to work on our kindness, compassion, and love, but appreciating our humanness, knowing that we constantly are are getting a teaching on a daily basis to be able to become free and of use to our fellow humans. And uh, so I love this little uh, little thing. We are forever growing, and as a result, we must continuously return to these fundamental teachings on discovering our evolving intention, intention, deepening trust in our basic goodness, becoming inquisitive about our life and livelihood, and engaging our speech and activity in a spacious and mindful manner. If we train in these basic tasks, we will succeed in our work and life and live a life that is meaningful and in tune with who we want to be. Simply said, right on, no? Oh, yeah. Oh, really nice. You know what? We're, we're yeah. over time today. Dave. Are we? Oh. Yeah. We went crazy. Yeah. We it's went enjoyable. Crazy. Yeah. Uh, you know, it's enjoyable talking about this stuff because I, I find, like you just said, that, you know, uh, as ancient as we are, um, you know, uh, although it's funny, really, you know, Shirdi Sai Baba, the great, great uh, Indian uh, Mahasiddha, you know, was once brought to court. Because someone said that someone in his village in India was accused of stealing something. And he said, well, Shirdi Sai Baba gave them to me, which was not true. So they, Shirdi would not go to court. But what he did was in his own rooms, he put together chairs and a table and everything to look like a courtroom. <laughs> okay. And then he sat there and they asked him questions like, and he said, um, do you know this person? He says, I know all people. <laughs> How old are you? Millions of years is what he said. Yeah. But then when they asked him, did this person, did, did you tell this person, did you give them these objects? He said, no, I did not. Mm-hmm. So there he was, you know, talking about the oneness of being eternal. But when he was asked, did this person tell the truth? He said, no. So, you know, <laughs> the truth will set you free. And I don't know why I brought that up. He came into my head. He does this all the time. Oh, beautiful. Well, we love to think about Trudy. Yeah. All right, Dave, this is it. Thank you. And thank everybody for joining Mind Rolling. And uh, please go to Mind Rolling uh, and onto the MindPod network and continue the support and the mail and the comments. We love to hear from you. And, oh, I have and, one recommendation. Can oh, I my make? God. Just, I forgot it. It's a book called Everything Mind by Chris Grasso, who is uh, part of MindPod and has his own podcast there and is a friend. But we just got the un- uncorrected proof, and I've started to read it, and you should read this book. It's so clear, and Chris is so But great. wait, it's not out yet. Oh, it's not out yet. Oh, no, it's, an, it's un- an uncorrected proof. proof. Okay, you jump the gun. But can't you pre-order on Amazon stuff like? Yeah, that? you can pre-order. Go ahead and pre-order Chris's book. Chris is okay, fantastic. Okay, and you may not hear this podcast right now. You might hear it in a month or two, and it'll be out really soon. And but it's really a good book, and that's my. Yeah, it'll be out in the fall of 2015. Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. okay. All right. Love to everybody. See you next week. Yes. <laughs>